Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Now, you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah, but that's just the first half of the book. The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. Now, right here in the middle is the story that connects these two halves together, and it all takes place at the foot of a famous mountain. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed, the family grows and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity. He brutally enslaves them. And he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out. He's the worst character in the Bible so far. Here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So Moses grows up and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush, and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this, this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just pretty much laughs at him. He's like, Who, who's this God, Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist. So he sends 10 different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house, it's pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelites' sons. Now, as you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of heart. 
But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart. And so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil, he's become monstrously evil. Even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story is that God uses his power to lure evil into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes into freedom. And after this, we find the very first song of worship in the Bible as the people praise God for redeeming them. And it's in this story that the word salvation is also used for the first time, which means simply to be rescued from danger. Now that they're saved, you would think that everything should be great but the story quickly turns. The Israelites start wandering in the desert. They're tired, hungry, lost. And you start to wonder, what's God doing? What were they saved for? And we learn the answer to that question in the very next story, which ties the two parts of this whole book together. Book of Exodus, we are beginning today. A major campaign through this book as a church family, uh, not just sermon series, we've got a Bible reading plan that starts tomorrow. If you're on our email list, you got the link for that yesterday, and we're going to send it out again tomorrow morning. If you're not on our email list, get on it, uh, fill out one of these connect cards, get you on that. Um, we've got some of our life groups going through this study. Like I said, get in a group. It's also a good time to switch groups, by the way, if you want to study the book of Exodus. This is a new season. If you want to leave one group, get in a different group, totally fine. That's allowable. Um, but this is a massive campaign. This is a crazy book. This is a wild book. This is a confusing book at times. Pastor Rigo is going to be putting out some midweek devotionals, answering some questions, helping to explain and bring clarity to things. Anything that I, uh, doesn't make sense that I say, he's going to say, he's going to crisplain things for you, right? This is what he meant. <laughs> um, he's, a, he's a good Bible teacher. Um, we are going to try to confront some of the false ideas about God that uh, a lot of us have. Even those of us who follow Jesus, we tend to have in our back of our mind some false ideas about God that the book of Exodus confronts and pushes against. One of those ideas is, is, is the fact that, or is the belief that God put the world in motion and then sort of just steps back and just kind of lets it spin. And it's like, y'all just kind of do your best and maybe I'll step back into it in the future. Uh, that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a form of deism that's not biblical. Uh, that's, not, that's not what God does. God, God is intimately involved in the events of, of history and, and, and humanity. He wants to be involved in the details of our lives, and he is. He moves uh, on behalf of his people. He steps in by his great power, keeps his promises. He wants to be present with us, not just in an omnipresent kind of way, but in a tangible way. He wants to be present with his people. Another false idea we're going to confront is the idea that the God of the Old Testament is this mean, old, stingy uh, God waiting to just smite everyone down uh, as soon as they annoy him, right? Like he's different than the Jesus of the New Testament, like they're two different gods. That's a false idea that we're going to confront. We're going to see in the book of Exodus that God is incredibly gracious. He's incredibly patient. He, he's, he's incredibly long-suffering with his people and their sins and their issues, Another false idea that we're going to see is the other side of that spectrum, the other extreme, which is the belief that God doesn't care about sin, doesn't care about evil, doesn't care about injustice, that he sort of just winks at it, tolerates it, 
you know, has a boys will be boys kind of attitude. What am I going to do? That's just a broken humanity. And we're going to see that no, God actually deals with sin. He deals with evil. He deals with injustice. In fact, it is because of his love for us that he has wrath. It is because of his grace that there is judgment. And we're going to see how those things relate through the book of Exodus. Somebody was just asking me uh, right before service about how uh, they're excited to see how, why we're doing the book of Exodus in this season as we enter the Lent season, as we get close to Easter and Good Friday. And you're going to see as we progress how those two things, how the book of Exodus ties in with Passover and Good Friday and, and, and Easter. Um, we're covering the first section of Exodus, the first 14 chapters between now and Easter. Then we're going to take a break for a few weeks, and then we're going to start the next major section. And we're going to see how it all ties in together with the cross and Jesus' sacrifice. And how God deals with, deals with injustice and, and evil and sin through grace and, and, and the cross. And it'll all tie together. Um, a, th a third false, or I'm sorry, a fourth false idea that's worth mentioning um, is, is the belief that God gave commandments and gave the law of Moses as a way for us to earn salvation and earn God's love. Some of us have that belief that, that that's why God originally gave commandments. That's not the case, never was the case. God did not give commandments in order to earn salvation. He gave commandments to his people because they already were saved, because they already were rescued out of Egypt, because they already were redeemed by God. And then he said, now because I have redeemed you, here's how to live. Here's the best way to live. Here's the best way to live so that you flourish and you're fulfilled and there's joy and there's peace. Much like a family who adopts a child and brings that child home and says, hey, here's the house rules so that things go well. Not in order to earn your adoption, but because you've already been adopted, because we've already brought you home, because you do belong to us. Here's some house rules. And that's why God gave the law of Moses. And so we're going we're gonna to see all that play out over the course of this series. Um, in the first sermon today, sort of an introduction sermon, we're going to zoom out and we just need to understand the larger story that the book of Exodus is part of. The book of Exodus is, is part of a larger story, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses, uh, written so that the people of Israel, the generation, in fact, who were about to enter the promised land, would understand where they came from and the story that they're a part of. The history of humanity, but also the history of their own people uh, and the history of, of, of God dealing with their people, where God wants to take them, the story that God is telling. And here's the main point that I want to lay before you as we get going that I'm just going to keep bringing before you uh, throughout the course of this sermon. It's in the form of a question. Here it is. God's big story or your small story? God's big story or your small story? That's, that's the question I want you to be thinking about question I want us to end with, which one are you living in? Which one is driving your heart? Which one is pushing you and motivating you forward? Because we all live according to a story. We all live at any given time according to a certain narrative beating in our souls, whether we're aware of it or not. There is a promised land, so to speak, that we're all chasing. There are obstacles and threats to that promised land that we're always on defense against. And when they seem to be threatening our promised land. We get a little anxious. We get a little on the defense. And then there's heroes that come in and out of our stories. Sometimes we're the hero. Sometimes other people are. Sometimes politicians are. I'm going to give you two examples. These are maybe stereotypes, but I want two examples, two people to get you thinking and get you to understand where I'm coming from. I'm going to tell you about Jason. I'm going to tell you about Mary. 
Jason grew up in a military home where he was always bouncing around place to place. Uh, he never really was able to settle down with his family for too long uh, to make close friends, so he was always saying goodbye to friends. Eventually, he realized he just can't get close to too many friends. His father also was a uh, strict taskmaster, disciplinarian. He kind of had the mantra of, you know, the key to success in life is to be disciplined. And so Jason grew up being a bit of a perfectionist, believing that his version of the promised land is to outshine everybody else, outwork everybody else, outdiscipline, so to speak, everyone else. And that's how he can get the stability that he never had growing up. That's his promised land. And other people, other classmates, other teammates in sports, other co-workers tended to be seen by him as competition, as obstacles, as threats, as enemies to him outshining them. He always was kind of feeling a little jealous, a little, uh, a little anxious when it seemed like they were doing better than him, even if they were his teammates on the field, co-workers that he was supposed to be working alongside of. He wasn't aware of this story, this narrative in the back of his head, but it was driving Jason to be the perfectionist, to be driven, to be ambitious, and to be anxious a lot. Then there was Mary. Mary, different family, grew up with a single mom. Who, whose father um, left her. Mary's father abandoned her, abandoned her mother when Mary was just a baby. But her mother uh, never ceased to remind Mary about her good-for-nothing father who didn't care for her. And in fact, in her worst moments, Mary's mother would let Mary know in sarcastic comments that she really can't trust any man, that all men can't be trusted. And so Mary grew up with this story in the back of her head that she's got to make it, she's got to be independent, and she's got to prove that she does not need a man. Now, she can date men. She could uh, use men as part of her story. But she has to always maintain the upper hand. And she can't really be too vulnerable with them. She doesn't need them. And she's got to prove that. And Mary doesn't know that. That's a story driving her. But that is the story. And for her and Jason, two separate individuals, two different families, they're both part of the same church. They both claim to believe the same things and sing the same songs about Jesus. They're both professing Christians. They've been baptized. They believe the right things about God and his story and his big story. They could tell you that story, but that's not the story driving their hearts. That's not the narrative pushing them forward. It's, 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 it's these other smaller stories that are driving them, and they want Jesus to be part of their small stories and bless their stories and help them succeed at work and, and whatnot. Instead of viewing their individual stories as part of a larger story that God has invited them into. And that's what I want you guys to be thinking about as we leave here today. What's the story that is driving you? What's the story that you are choosing to live in? Even if you're a follower of Jesus, you might have a different story that is pushing you and motivating you. And I want you to lay that down. Repentance means to do a 180 in your thinking, to change your mind. I'm not going to live according to this small story where I see other people as obstacles to my promised land, where I'm anxious every time uh, things don't go according to my plan. I want to lay that down, and Lord, I'm going to live according to your big story where I'm trusting that there's, that there's peace and there's joy and there's fulfillment. That's what I believe Moses is trying to do for the people of Israel when, when he um, starts off the book of Exodus with the first seven verses. He is reminding them that they're part of a larger story. That's what he's trying to do with this whole uh, Pentateuch, the whole first five books. You are a part of a larger story. Don't drift. 
Because they're going to be tempted to look at the nations around them and go, oh, we want that story. That's, that must be how to live. We want to we live according to the story that the culture is telling us to live according to. And Moses is writing this, and I believe God wants them to say, no, you're part of something bigger. God's got a big story. Choose that story. So let's get going. Let's jump into the first seven verses. If you have your Bibles, try to follow along. We're going to start here, and then we're going to jump back to the book of Genesis at different points. This is what it says. The book of Exodus opens with this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Verse 6, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay, so we'll stop there. If you were just reading these verses isolated from everything else, you would probably be bored. Okay, right? Probably, what? Where do I get from this? What am I supposed to do with this? Right? That's kind of how we tend to view the Bible. Let me encourage you not to read the Bible that way. Whenever you read the, anything in the Bible, start the, the first question should be, what does this reveal about God? What does this reveal about the character and nature and story of God? Start there. Then you can ask the second question of, how am I to live in light of that? By the way, those questions are on our website under the, the reading plan. So this text right here would, would ring with meaning for Moses' original audience, his hearers, who would have already read the book of Genesis and knew that part of the story. Uh, particularly, verse 7 would ring with meaning. It would echo back to Genesis chapter 1. I'm underlining verse 7 there, where it says, exceedingly fruitful, multiplied greatly, increased in number, became so numerous, the land was filled with them. Those words, those phrases would echo back to Genesis chapter 1, where God laid out his dream for the first two human beings. We're going to cut back to Genesis 1 verse 28 where God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, do it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That's God telling Adam and Eve, I want you. You guys are my image bearers. You're reflecting who I am. I want you to multiply. I want you to make more of yourselves. Spread this thing called humanity. Spread my image all over the world and increase in number and, and, and rule over the earth. God declared creation good, and now he's saying, rule over that good creation. Take charge of it in a good way. If, if they're going to reflect the goodness of God, they're going to do it in a good way. That was the goal. That's the dream of God. If you know the story, Genesis chapter 3, things take a uh, turn for the worse. The first two human beings rebelled against this story. They ate fruit that God said, don't eat. And they ate that fruit because they chose a different story. They decided, you know what? We want, we want to tell our own story. God is holding out on us. There is a better life that this fruit gives us access to. There is another promised land, if you will, where there's greater freedom for us, where we don't need God. And all of a sudden, in that story, God became the enemy. God became the threat. And so they chose to eat this fruit. They chose a different path, and everything was fractured. Everything started to unravel and not work the way it was meant 
to work because that's what happens when you and I choose to live according to our own small stories where we want ourselves to be the center of that story. We want to be the main characters in that story. Things go poorly. Things go poorly. So things got worse. They, they did multiply. They had kids, and, um, but they were not reflecting the image of God that they were meant to. It was a fractured mirror, right? So sort of reflected the image of God, but in a fractured kind of way because of sin and pride and rebellion. And so humanity multiplied and multiplied, but so did corruption, so did sin. And so God eventually was like, I'm starting over with a flood. I'm wiping out every living thing except for one family, the family of Noah and all the animal species that Noah brings on the ark. After the flood, after God starts over, God said something to Noah that is very similar to what God said to Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, God said to Noah and his sons, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Sound familiar, right? God's not, God's not giving up. He's like, I want the earth filled with a people who belong to me, who worship me, who trust me, who obey me, who reflect my image, and who rule over the earth in a good way who bring shalom and bring peace to that earth. But because these guys were stained with sin, it was in their hearts, proving that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's in our DNA. We're born with it. They couldn't shake it, and so things got corrupt again. Humanity did indeed multiply, but not in the way God intended. They did indeed try to rule over the earth, but not in the way God intended. They tried to rule over each other. There was abuse. There was murder. There was all kinds of dysfunction. And things got corrupt and bad and evil. And so God, instead of starting over again, God chose a man named Abram. Because he's not done with his story. He's still going to tell his story. His story will be fulfilled. So he grabbed a man named Abram, who's just random dude in many respects. We don't exactly know why he, he called Abram, but he set Abram apart. And he said to Abram, we're going to jump now to Genesis 12. He said this to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, so same idea that he said to Adam and Eve, same idea that he said to Noah. God has a dream, God has a goal of multiplying a group of people who would spread out over the earth and be a blessing to his good creation. You see that? See in verse uh, two there? I will make you into a great nation. I'm gonna multiply you. God's still after multiplication. Verse three, I will... Um, or end of verse 2, I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. End of verse 3, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You're going to rule over creation, and you're going to bring goodness to it. You're going to bring blessing to it. Now, there is one difference in how God communicates this goal, this dream, to Abram that is different than how he communicated it to Noah and Adam and Eve. I don't know if you pick up on it, but uh, to Noah and Adam and Eve, it was a command. Go be fruitful and multiply. To Abram, it's a promise. It's almost like God saying, I'm going to do this. Just so you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to create through you a nation. And through that nation, the entire world is going to be blessed. 
Now, Abram had a part to play. Verse one, go from your country, your people, and your father's household. You have to leave. You have to trust me by laying down your small story. Don't live in your small story anymore. Whatever plans you had, you were going to remodel your house. Lay it down because you're moving. You were going to look for a new job. Lay it down. You're moving. You wanted to stay connected to the in-laws here. Lay it down. You're moving. Say goodbye. I got something bigger going on I want you to be part of. But God's, God's saying, I'm going to do this. This is my promise. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. And in verse 4, Abram went as the Lord had told him. He obeyed. He trusted. He said, okay. It, your story it is, God. I'm going to live in your story. I don't get it. I don't know what's going on here. I'm going to say goodbye to my relatives. And I'm going to go. And also, another part that was confusing for him and his wife, they were old, and they hadn't had any kids. How do you get a nation out of an old couple who don't have any kids? He didn't understand it. And as time went by and they still didn't have any kids, he got a little confused. And he expressed that to God. We're going to jump now to Genesis 15. Verse 3, Abram said to God, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. But verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Abram, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Verse 5, he took him outside. So God took Abram outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. They're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. I got this. I'm going to keep my promise. You don't have to know how I'm going to do it. You don't have to know what this, all the plot points in the story. You need to trust. In verse 6, what does Abram do? He believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. He trusted. He believed. He said, okay. So eventually God renamed Abram Abraham, and Abraham and his wife Sarah uh, gave birth to Isaac. Isaac gave birth to two sons, Jacob and Esau, and God chose Jacob to continue his story through. Jacob had 12 sons. Um, one of them was Joseph. Uh, Joseph ended up in Egypt. Um, through, through all this, by the way, through all this, there was a great deal of um, sin and evil and, and dysfunction in this family. Abram, for example, Abraham, um, at two different points, said to a foreign king while he was traveling, this woman that I'm with ain't my wife. She's my sister. So if you want to kind of treat her as one of your wives, go ahead. It's all good. Two times, just to save his skin because he was afraid. Because he slipped back into small thinking. He slipped back into, this is my story and I got to protect myself here. Two times he did that. Men. Now, oh, never mind. The sermon will get too long. I won't go down that trail. So um, Jacob, another example, he was a manipulative deceiver who tricked his brother out of his inheritance. And God chose to use Jacob. We don't know why, but he did. Joseph, his brothers were so bad that they took him, threw him in a pit, wanted to kill him, decided not to kill him, decided, you know what, let's just sell him as a slave into Egypt and get rid of him because they were jealous of him. And then they went back to their father and told their father, Jacob, that Joseph had gotten eaten by wild beasts. Got rid of him. So this is the family that God is choosing to bless the world through. Doesn't make sense, but it should encourage us, right? 
should encourage us with our messed up families and the dysfunction we have in our homes. God can still use us. And even when we choose to say, no, God, I'm going to live according to my own plan and my own small story, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to rebel because I'm scared. Your story's too confusing for me. I want to be in charge. I want to take control. Even when we do that, God continue to come after us. He's gracious. He's faithful. He brings us back. He says, oh, come on. I'm inviting you back in. I'm not giving up on you. I want to keep using you. That's our God. That's our God. So Joseph ends up in Egypt. He's a slave. Then he is falsely accused of attacking and assaulting his master's wife. So he's made a prisoner in Egypt. So it goes from bad to worse. But through a series of miraculous events, he is elevated to be second in charge of all of Egypt. Over the course of two decades, slave, prisoner, and then second in charge of all of Egypt because Pharaoh needed him to help prepare the land for a famine and help manage the storehouses of food during this famine that came over the land. Now, while the famine was there, Joseph's brothers, who had sold him into slavery, came to Egypt looking to buy food. They had to come before Joseph to get that food. They didn't know who Joseph was. They didn't recognize him. A couple, 20-something years had passed by. Joseph recognized them. And long story short, Joseph chose to forgive them, reveal himself to them, and then use his authority and his power to have the whole family move to Egypt where they can be safe and they can survive the famine. And you know what Joseph says at the end of the book of Genesis? By the way, the story of Joseph is the longest story in the book of Genesis. But Joseph says to his brothers, it was not you who sent me here, it was God. You intended evil, God intended this for good the saving of many lives. Joseph basically was saying, there's a bigger story going on here that I'm choosing to trust, and that's how I can forgive you. That's how I can forgive you and save your lives instead of have your heads chopped off like he could have. So he moves the family to Egypt, and that's where the book of Exodus opens. And that's why it rings with meaning for the people of Israel. Let's go back to it. Exodus 1, verse 1 through 7. Let's read it again. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, these are Joseph's brothers who tried to get rid of him and whose lives were saved by Joseph. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. They're all their families. Joseph, Moses reminds them, was already in Egypt because God sent Joseph ahead. Yes, as a slave, yes, as a prisoner, but then ultimately second in command of the land so that this family could be preserved and so that God's story could progress. Now, they were only a family of 70 at this point, so God's promise to Abram to create a nation through him was not yet there. They weren't a nation. 70 people in a nation. It's a big family. It's nice but it ain't the nation. But the very next verse, Moses skips a few generations and tells us what happened. In verse six, he says, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and they became so numerous that the land was filled with them. 
We're going to see in Exodus chapter 12 that the number of Israelite men at this point numbered about 650,000 men plus women and children. Conservative estimates put the total at between 2.5 million and 3.5 million. So, just to remind you, from an old couple who couldn't have kids to a family of 70 arriving in Egypt to a few million, God is keeping his promise to have a people for himself multiplying, ever increasing in number, who would fill the earth, who would bless all peoples on the earth. God is telling his story. That's what Moses wants the people of Israel to see right at the outset of the book of Exodus. And I believe that's what God wants us to hear, that God has a story he's telling. He's, he's a promise keeper. Nothing can thwart that story. It's long and it's windy and it takes detours that we don't understand. It's confusing at times. But God is faithful to tell this story. He has reasons for those details. There are points in that story where we're like, God, I think things would be shorter if we cut this way. And God's like, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to take the windy road here. Trust me. Trust in what I'm doing. And we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make. Are we going to live in God's big story or our own small stories? What's it going to be? And whenever we hit a crisis point, whenever we hit a, a point in our lives where it feels like there's disappointment and it feels like things aren't going according to plan and it feels like people around us are obstacles to what we perceive to be our promised land and our goals and our dreams, we have a choice to make. Those are the moments, those are crisis points where we have a choice to make. Am I going to choose God's big story or am I going to choose my own small story and be anxious and try to assuage that anxiety by taking control and being on the defense and getting angry with people and railing against God and grumbling and complaining and being depressed and living in despair? Or am I going to choose to trust that God is doing something? There's something bigger going on here. He's telling a bigger story because he is. His story's not done. You and I are still part of this story of redemption, this, part of God, this story of God redeeming humanity, recreating the world, restoring it to the way it was supposed to be. That's God's big story. It's not over yet. We're going to see and be reminded of the fact that the way that all nations are blessed through the people of Abraham, through the line of Abraham, is through this one child that was born to a teenage girl hundreds and hundreds of years after Abraham, named Jesus, who grew up to take the sins of the world upon himself. He died for them. He became the spotless Passover lamb. And then he rose again and he conquered the grave. And he says to all of us, not just Jews, but Gentiles, people from all over, all walks of life, regardless of our past, regardless of what we've been through, regardless of whether or not we've been manipulative deceivers like Jacob or we've betrayed others like Joseph's brothers and we've done great evil, it doesn't matter. God says, I'm inviting you into this resurrection life. Trust me, I've got something bigger. I want to use you to bless the world. And he promises to one day return and to bring heaven and earth together, and to uh, recreate the earth, and, and all his followers, all who belong to him, will ultimately, in, in the most ultimate way, reign and rule over his good creation the way we were always supposed to. And in the meantime, in the meantime, we will come across multiple crisis points, multiple disappointments, 
where we have to choose to trust. Is it going to be God's big story, or are we going to cling to our own small stories because it feels safer? Are we going to cling to this American dream life that we're told to chase? Are we going to, are we going to cling to this, this, this goal of, of, of living for the accolades of other people or, or this goal of building some, some empire unto ourselves with our business? Or is that going to be our goal? Is that going to be the stories that drive us? Or are we going to live according to God's big story and let him use us to bless the world? Let him use us to bring the good news of Jesus to the world? Let him use us and mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus? What's it going to be? If you're a follower of Jesus, you may know the story of Jesus. But if you're like me, there are days and weeks and seasons of life where that's not the story driving you. And I want to encourage you today to repent, change your mind, decide, Jesus, I want to live in light of your big story. If you've never trusted in Jesus, if you've never trusted in what he's done, the promised Savior for the world, if you've um, come to a point perhaps today where you're realizing that the story that you're living according to ain't working, it ain't bringing you the fulfillment and the joy that you thought it would, I want to encourage you to bow your knee to Jesus today. Jesus, I want in on your story. I trust that you died for me, you rose again for me. I'll be available after service to talk to you about that if you want. So will Pastor Rigo. We've got a baptism coming up on Palm Sunday, the week before Easter. We're going to baptize folks in here. If you want to join in that, that's the first step of obedience when you trust in Jesus. It's a way of saying, essentially, my old story is dead. I ain't living according to that story no more. I'm living according to this big story, this big story of redemption through Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. I'm going to call the band up. We're going to just reflect on a question for a moment, and then we're going to sing a song and close. But here's the question. You guys can come on up, band. Here's the question. What part of your story do you need to trust God with right now? What part of your individual story, and by the way, we're not telling you to diminish or pretend like your individual stories didn't happen. What we're asking you to do, what I'm asking you to do, is to put it, inside of God's big story. Don't let that be the story that drives you. So what part of your individual story do you have trouble trusting God with right now? What area of your life do you have trouble trusting God with? It doesn't make sense. Adam and Eve, that, that fruit that they, that they were told not to eat from, didn't make sense to them. And they, in the end, didn't trust that God was looking out for them. So they grabbed it. What about you? Is there an area of your life? I would assume that Joseph had moments when he was in prison where he was like, what the heck is going on here? What did I do to deserve this? What's the area of your life that you have trouble trusting God with? A few indicators that might help you. What do you complain about the most? What do you find yourself grumbling about the most? Who do you find yourself grumbling about the most. That's an indicator that you see that thing, that person, as an obstacle to your version of the promised land. 
Can you identify it? Here's another indicator. Who do you get mad at the most? What person, group of people make you feel threatened? Could be a boss, could be coworkers, could be a political party that you feel like has the power to steal your promised land from you. It's an indicator that you're living in a smaller story. Could be a spouse, could be parents, kiddos. Can I, be, can I say something to the kids for a moment? I remember seeing my parents as a threat to my happiness, an obstacle to my happiness. Don't buy into that story, guys. Don't buy into that story. They're flawed, imperfect. But there's a bigger story that God invites you into. Don't buy into the lie that your parents are obstacles to your happiness. God has put you in the family. He has put you for a reason. Another indicator, one more indicator to help us identify an area where we're not trusting God. Where do you find yourself saying, I don't understand why God would blank. I don't understand why God would, you fill in the blank, why God would allow this, why God would decide that. I don't understand why God would. Again, I would imagine Joseph had many of those moments while he was a slave and a prisoner. I would imagine that Abraham and Sarah, as they were getting older, go, I don't understand why God would allow us to get so old. This doesn't make any sense. We would be better parents if we had our kid when we were in our 20s. Doesn't make any sense. Last night I was reminded of something stuck out in my brain because of preparing for this sermon, but I realized that my kids say stuff sometimes that I think is stupid. So they'll say, and that's stupid is the wrong word, that's stupid is the wrong word, um, ignorant. They'll say, they'll, they'll, one of my kids was watching something that me and Jess were watching, and they watched a few moments of it, and they said, that's weird. Like, they criticized what we were watching. Uh, a couple days ago, another one of my kids heard me and Jess make a joke, and she said, that wasn't funny. And my response to both of them was like, you're too young to get it. Yes, it was funny. And no, what we were watching wasn't weird, but you're too young to get it. You just don't get it. And sometimes that's what we do to God. We look at the story God is telling and we're like, it's weird, God. It doesn't make any sense. And if it doesn't make sense to me, then it just doesn't make sense. And God's like, you're just so much smaller than I am. Just, just trust me. Trust that you're so much smaller. There's so much you don't know. There's so much you're ignorant about. There's this big story that I'm telling. This grand story that when we're reigning and ruling on this new earth, you're, it all makes sense. You got to trust me right now. So before we sing this song, I just want to give you one more minute to just see if you can identify an area where you're not trusting God. Part of your story.
ask you to do. Here's what I ask you to do. Just if you've been able to identify something, maybe not everybody has been able to, but if you've been able to identify something, could you just put your hand up? Okay. It's a good number of you guys. Okay, good. Good that you were able to identify. First step, right? Just be able to confess to God. Here's the area. So Lord, I, I, I thank you that you shine the light into that, that area of our souls and our lives. I thank you for these men and women who were able to confess that. And now I pray for the power by your spirit to, to repent, to just start trusting you with that area, to live in your bigger story when it comes to that area of their lives. I don't know what that looks like for them, but I ask that you show that to them. Show them what their next step is in trusting you. Just like you told Abram to leave his homeland. Just like Joseph had to choose to forgive his brothers as an act of faith in your big story. There's going to be a step of faith for these men and women to take. I don't know what it is, but I ask that you show them what that is. And I pray that when the temptation comes to grumble about that area, to worry, to feel anxious, I pray that they can stop and choose instead to declare that you are good, that you're a promise keeper, that your story is good, and that they would give thanks to you that we get to be part of that story through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand and sing this final song together. And, and I say this a lot, but when I say, can we sing it together? I mean, like, can we literally sing it together using our voices? Because what we do with our bodies has an effect on our hearts. And this song is about the goodness of God. Can we sing it? Can we press in? Can we make these declarations? Thanks.